Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Faith, Tech, and Space podcast. I'm your host, Rich Hay, from windowsobserver.com. Um, good to be with you today. It has been just about a month since my last episode got recorded. Just I'm, I'm really still trying to find my footing when it comes to scheduling for this podcast. I mean, I've always committed it wouldn't be a weekly one initially. Um, my goal is twice a month, and so I'm a little behind that goal with this episode coming out almost a month after the last one. But this is our first episode, my first episode of 2020. So a uh, lot to catch up on, a lot to talk about, when the world of tech especially. Um, but as always, I wanted to start um, with something I'm going to talk about later in the show, but this will kind of be my opening discussion. And there's a lot of controversy going on this o- over this past week about search engines, specifically about the fact that Microsoft uh, sent out an update to administrators of Office 365 Pro Plus subscriptions or, or tenants and said that they were going to release this feature that would automatically install a um, an extension on Chrome, on any of those, on any devices running Office 365 Pro Plus, to make the home page of Chrome Bing. So um, now there's a lot of people that are upset about this because it's opt out, not opt in. I agree with that. It should be opt in. You should announce the feature and then let people choose to go get it to implement it and stuff like that. Instead, it's opt out. So that means these administrators have to go and actively take a step. Uh, I believe they can use group policy for this. They have to take a step to prevent this from being the case. Now, there's been a variety of reactions to this, and and a lot of it is hard right kind of uh, anger, frustration, irritated, whatever you want to call it. I've I've seen words used in headlines like sneakily or under the table and things like that. I disagree with those uh, descriptions completely because guess what? Microsoft announced this before implementing it. That means the word is out. It wasn't sneaky. Had they not announced this and then suddenly installed an extension on Chrome and made the homepage Bing, that would be sneaky. That would be under the table. However, in this case, they have announced it ahead of time so that admins can take the steps they need to take to either embrace it and let that happen. There are a lot of benefits to an Office 365 subscription that uses Bing as a homepage because you can get some specific intranet inside your business-related content on that homepage. Um, And then there are those that don't want this and have to now go out and create the group policy, farm that out, and do that. And that's, that's fine. Admins do that a lot on a lot of different things. But I personally, as I've already said, I would prefer this to be an opt-in thing. I always am supportive of opt-in. The only time I really look at opt-out as is that we should be automatically opted into something is when it comes to security and privacy. We should be implemented. We should be integrated or opted in to the highest level possible when it comes to security and privacy. And then we can adjust from there based on our own dictates, our own settings, our own kind of circumstances. So, so Microsoft did announce it, did put it out there in the public. People are upset that it's not opt out, that it is opt in. It's going to happen unless you take steps to prevent it. And that's what you do. That's why I shared on Twitter. You know, ultimately, this isn't a sneaky thing. People may not agree with it. We also had the incident this past week where there were reports with WordPad on Windows 10 that were starting to pop up. Um, kind of, uh, people are calling them ads. I don't think they're ads. I think they're awareness alerts. They they kind of tell people, hey, there's an option here: Word Online, Excel Online, that kind of thing. And that's what it was doing. Um, but again, they announced it. 
They provided the tools to opt out of it. It should have been an opt. They should have not had done that. People should opt in. Uh, unfortunately, I think most most companies default to opt out because most will not make the change. They'll, it'll happen, and therefore the numbers will reflect that. Um, so so it's a lot of controversy. It's a lot of. Um, you know, gnashing and gnawing of the teeth and things like that. I think it's a, a little bit over the top. It usually is when it comes to reaction like this with any technology company. But, um, yeah, they could have done it a little bit better. They could have approached it a little bit better. They could have they could have kind of led into this change by announcing it on the blog post. They would have gotten the feedback a lot sooner had they done that, not right on top of it coming out. But, anyway, so that's kind of my opening to talk about the, the big point of frustration for a lot of people this past week. Next up, I'll catch up a little bit about where I'm at in, in uh, faith and formation. Uh, it is a new year. That means new classes. So as I mentioned at the last class, we wrapped up our uh, philosophy class, which was uh, philosophy for understanding theology. I think I don't know if I had a grade by that time, but I did get a B plus in that, so I was quite happy with that. It was a challenging class, especially the reading. Uh, this new year, we have started our local classes and our new online classes. So online for the next 12 weeks, we will be working with sacramental theology. And sacramental theology focuses on the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church and their origins, their, their biblical origins or their origins in the magisterium, which is the teaching of the church, uh, traditions of the church. That's a, a big T in front of traditions as opposed to a little t. Uh, that means it's part of the church teaching and part of the church structure. Um, and so we're going through, and the first one we're doing actually is baptism. And so we're learning the, the underlying uh, source of that sacrament and, and the graces and the things that come with that sacrament. But we're also learning the practical part of the sacrament. So we're being shown the different formulas, formulas for doing a baptism under certain circumstances, whether it's an adult or a child and things of that nature. And we're and we're learning the, the elements of the rite and what their impact is and what they do and what they give the person being baptized in this case um, from a theological perspective as well as the magisterium and teaching of the church. So that's our online class. We'll be doing that for the next 12 weeks. Um, I believe at the end of that class we do not have a test. We actually have a 10-page paper uh, with a minimum of 10 sourcing sources in the bibliography. So that'll be a fun paper to do. Uh, 10 pages roughly comes out to about... Uh, I want to ballpark that at about 1,000 words, I think, maybe 1,500 words. Uh, locally, our first class of the year, which was a few weeks ago, was canon law. Now, we're only going to have two classes on canon law. So this past class was really a focus on the broadness of canon law. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, canon law in the Catholic Church is based on the theology of the church. So it's not like civil law. It, it does um, address different kinds of situations and things like that, but canon law is very different from civil law. Uh, they don't parallel each other. So when you find something in the canon law, it, it relates to the theology and teachings of the church, the magisterium of the church, and how we're to conduct different things and to deal with different situations and stuff like that. Um, it contains sacramental law, which is the, what we're going to focus on in our next class in February, because that is probably for uh, those who are ordained deacons. One of the because you can do baptisms and marriages and funerals and things like that outside the mass. 
um, you have to understand the form and matter of those sacraments so that you make sure they're valid, so that they they are done in with the proper words and the proper things, such as for baptism and water, um, so that they're valid and and not have any issues around that. So we're going to learn, we're going to spend an entire day on sacramental canon law so that we understand those things. And then we have a handbook, probably about 300 pages, a handbook on canon law that we have been assigned to read through the course of this summer, uh, spring and summer. So that'll give us that introduction to that. Canon law, the book itself, the what they call the new commentary on canon law, which was published in uh, the this this edition of canon law. The first one was in 19, uh, I'm, I'm probably confusing the date, 1919 or 1907. That was the first one. And then they redid it again after Vatican II in the late 60s, worked on it through the 70s, and in, 19, in the 80s, this current version of Canon Law. And it's had several updates over the years, but that's the, the book. And it's a 2,000-page book that not only contains the canon, but a, it has a commentary on the canon. So you get the canon, which is a paragraph or however many paragraphs, and then you get an explanation of where that canon came from and the theology behind it and things like that. Uh, the other local thing we will do is church history. So in March, I believe it is, we will uh, have a church history class about the church history here in Florida in the Diocese of St. Augustine. And then we're actually going to visit the um, uh, the uh, site in St. Augustine where, it, where the uh, Our Lady of La Leche is and our, that, that, um, that spot of the church. So we got those coming up locally. Uh, and then pastoral experience-wise, I'm getting ready to start off my uh, formal training now that I have all the right documents to do um, an apostleship of the sea pastoral experience. So I, do, I will do 40 hours before this June of volunteering in this ministry, which caters to the, the seamen, the sailors that come in on the commercial cargo ships into the ports here in Jacksonville. We give them a bit of a respite, a place to come rest, make a phone call, use the internet, watch some television, get a snack, do something a little bit different. We have vehicles where we can transport them to local shopping if they want to be able to do some shopping. So we have the ability to um, support them in this ministry. And so I'll be doing that for my first pastoral experience of year one. Um, and then the other thing I want to mention, this I, I published this post in early January, so this is the first podcast since I did publish it, but I published a blog post, which a lot of listeners will have already heard about, um, and it was called A Silver Lining, Melanoma Just Got Personal. So in early December, I was, di- or I was actually in November, I was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma on the top of my head, on the back crown of my head. Uh, it was through a routine visit. I guess you'd call it routine visit. So I, I was concerned about a few different spots on my body, and I was switching to a new doctor. So he said, I tell you what, let's send you to a dermatologist, get you a head-to-toe look, and see if there's anything of concern. So at the time at that appointment, the um, the physician's assistant who was doing my exam uh, took a look at the spot on my head and was a little bit concerned, so he did do a shave biopsy. That got sent to the lab and it was determined that it was malignant melanoma skin cancer, uh, the most aggressive form of of cancer there is in a lot of ways because it can spread to the body if it's not treated. Uh, We were very lucky, I was very blessed, in that we found this at what's called stage zero. So it was still very much in the epidermis, the, the top layer of the skin. It had not penetrated deeply or anything like that. So no concerns about it spreading, but it needed to be removed. 
So uh, we, I was scheduled for surgery, outpatient surgery, on the 9th of December and went in, and they removed a fairly large chunk of the back of my skull, a, you know, a big divot as I described it. Uh, but here I am six weeks later, and it is almost completely filled in. They couldn't pull the skin together to sew it up because of the nature of the, the, the skin on your head. It's so tight. So they allowed it to heal secondarily. So it was kept covered. It was they kept a layer of aquaphor on it for healing and moisture. Uh, and I had my last wound checked this past Thursday. Very, They are very happy with the... It's, it blows me away. When you look at the initial photo after it was removed and how large it was, it's amazing that the body, the way it heals, the way it's created to heal. Um, so very blessed, very thankful for all the thoughts that everybody has shared with me since I sent that from their own personal stories of melanoma and just to the encouragement of that. So I do appreciate that from everybody out there. Okay, let's talk a little bit of tech. Let's talk Windows Insiders. Lots going on in the Windows Insider world. In fact, um, why is my, hmm, let me pause for a minute and get back to you because some of my entries did not update on the copy I'm looking at. Hang on. Okay, I'm back. I had copied links for recent Insider Preview builds and put them into the blog post for this podcast, but I hadn't put them in the OneNote uh, notes that I used to do this uh to, to t- talk to you guys through. So uh, let's talk about Windows Insider and let's get caught up. First off, um, the slow ring. So you already know from the last episode, slow ring has now become kind of the stabilization channel for Windows 10 20H1. That's the first update of this new year, 2020. So we don't know when that's going to come out. We expect it looks like that might be March, April, which would be around the normal time. It's just going to get a lot of time to cook in its current uh, state and get some cumulative updates, which it did. Uh, it got um, it got updated to dot two one, so one nine zero four one dot two one on the fourteenth of January during Patch Tuesday, and that was to fix a security issue that was uh, needed to be dealt with. So the slow ring got a small cumulative update. You can expect that to be what happens over the next few months while they get ready to release it. So it'll be stabilization. It'll be um, specific bugs being sorted out and things like that and, and security updates because here's basically you got to look at slow ring of windows insider right now as being the potential commercial consumer release and so they're going to service it because it they're going to service it so that it continues to be updated and in line with what's out there so we got that going on with slow ring over in the fast ring there's already, there has already been three builds released this month for Insider Fast Ring. Now, Insider Fast Ring, as you might recall, is the new Windows 10 V Next. At least that's the name I've given it. So, V Next is a branch of the uh, Windows 10 code that is where the, the software engineers, the software developers are actively plugging in their features, actively plugging in their tweaks and fixes and things like that to build towards the next version of Windows 10, the next whatever it's going to be. So if we stick with the 20H1, that you know, that H1, H2 kind of nomenclature, that what will happen is at some point down the road, I suspect if they're going to do a fall 20H2 release, it'll be sometime in the summer after 20H1 comes out, they will branch off of this Windows 10 V next branch, and then they will, they will have... At that time, they'll include whatever features they're going to include in 20H2, and it will start to work towards stabilization. When it branches off, it'll go into slow ring, and that's where it will set as it gets tweaked and, and sorted out, take care of the bugs, performance, all that kind of normal stuff. So the fact that micro, the significant change here, besides the uh, the more breaking edge, bleeding edge 
uh, fast ring builds for Windows 10 V Next is the fact that slow ring, that next feature update, is going is setting in slow ring in a and cooking and stewing and kind of developing and getting more stable and more robust. It's uh, it's going to set in there for two or three months now instead of just a couple weeks, and that is tremendous for the stability of these updates and releases for Windows 10. So this past month we've had 19541. 19546, and the most recent version of the Windows 10 V Next build is 19551 that came out just this past week. All right, so that's where we're at with insider stuff. Edge insiders. So it's been an exciting month for Edge since it's been a month since we talked. We get to talk about the new Edge release, right? The stable branch that is out. So, real quick catch up where do we stand as of today with now four Edge channels, development channels? We have Edge Canary which is at 81.0.403.0. That's a daily update, right? You can expect that Monday through Friday, usually. Edge Dev is a weekly update. That is at build 81.0.396.0. And again, it's not always the same day each week, but again, once a week, you typically see Edge Dev updated. Then we have Edge Beta. This is the six-week channel. About every six weeks, it gets a major update. It is currently on 80.0.361.40. So that's where Edge Beta is. And Edge Beta is also the release candidate for Edge Stable. Okay, So Edge Stable release is 79.0.309.71. Now Edge Stable came out on the 15th of January. Uh, I think this build has been updated a couple times and tweaked the, that point number, that .71 number. But um, I would suspect now that Edge Beta is in the 8.0 range, uh, version range, the next Edge Stable build will, will reflect that as well. So as you know, Edge Canary, Bleeding Edge Daily, Edge Dev Weekly, Edge Beta every six weeks, Edge Stable every six weeks out of the Edge Beta. Um, so we, you'll see features kind of work their way down through those four channels. So lots of excitement when uh, the new browser was released and all the new details about that. Um, out of preview and official it is missing a, a few key features, but they're being worked on, and that's uh, favorite sync, extension sync, and uh, history sync. So your browsing history sync and getting that all uh, across all your devices. So I've got blog posts here from the team about the new Edge and how to go get it. I got uh, upgrading to the new Microsoft Edge and how to do that specifically. Understand when you install the new Microsoft Edge, it is going to replace your Edge Legacy, what they're calling Edge Legacy now. So they're saying, they're calling the, the quote-unquote new little n Microsoft Edge as the new version of Microsoft Edge. And then Microsoft Edge Legacy that shipped with Windows 10 back in 2015 is called, referred to as Legacy. Um, so you've got that available. Uh, I wrote up a blog post about it leaving beta, but the cool part of this is I included, they, they had an awesome um, graphic at the top of the main blog post about this, but they also used it as the uh, new tab page background. It's a beautiful shot with a big, beautiful, uh, the new Edge logo in the middle of it. So I downloaded that in full resolution. It's available on my website to download to do on backgrounds and things like that. So you can go grab that if you're interested in that from that blog post as well. The links are all in the show notes, right, over at winobs.com. Um, Microsoft Enterprise Ready. I also wrote over at my day job, IT Pro Today, about the tools and resources that Microsoft have made available to enterprise customers to be able to, to send that new Chromium browser, new Edge, out to their users as well, or to just start testing it. Along with that, you've got the new 
security baseline final. Those are the group policy settings for security and privacy and all of that related stuff for the new Microsoft Edge that enterprise customers can use to uh, lock down and kind of secure their installation. Uh, the Edge Mobile on Android, and I think it's also shown up on iOS, has got a new control center that's kind of slick, so you can check that out. Speaking of mobile version of Edge, I noticed on my wife's phone this morning that on her new tab page when she opens Edge, she's actually got an image of the daily image that, that is the background of the browser each day. So I'm not sure how to get that on mine. I don't see that, but I'm going to mess around with that and check that out. But the Control Center, very customizable, gives you access to a lot of the basic features you need. It comes on the bottom of the screen. I've got screenshots and all that uh, to show you how to kind of maneuver around that new Control Center. Uh, yeah, no, iOS. So iOS and Android both got the new icon and the new Control Center. Uh, and got a blog post here from Microsoft.com. As I was mentioning, the new Microsoft Edge replaces Edge le oh, replaces Legacy Edge, but there it's not gone. It's not uninstalled. It's just hidden. There is a way to get access to it on Microsoft.com. Wrote that up, and I got you a link to that as well. And then I've got a link to all. And this is not complete. This is just what I had at the time. All the new uh, support articles that are for new edge and micro edge legacy are available now and so you can go check those out and get those and i'm what i'm doing is on my original blog post about the release of uh, edge chromium the stable branch i'm updating my list of support articles as i discover new ones so i've got those marked in the date they went in so you can check that out uh, some of that right now is the organization of favorites uh, accessibility troubleshooting for the install and updating the Microsoft Edge, how to hide your favorites bar. Um, and then I've got the latest dev channel update, um, the the kind of live stuff. So they did the update this past week, and there's a change summary for that. So I've got links to that as well. The other big thing that happened in the month of January for operating systems was Windows 7 received its final updates on Patch Tuesday back on the 14th of January. That means no updates in February for Windows 7 unless you are an enterprise or a small to medium business or somebody who ha found a way to get your hands on the extended security updates for Windows 7. Anything else is just bogus. It's, it's just not valid you're not getting properly updated and properly protected. So at the moment, you might be okay. There may not be any threat out there for Windows 7, but if any new threat shows up, the likelihood is, is you are not going to be protected from it because you are not getting the latest updates for Windows 7. Only those companies that have moved on and gotten the extended security uh, updates will get that. So uh, I've got a great blog post here from uh, uh, Steven, um, Steven Sanofsky that used to build Windows, he built Windows 8, um, about facing the new decade. He talks about how Windows is kind of done over the last 10 years. As always, very verbose, but a very much background and driven from experience. So it's always an interesting read. I wrote about the consumer outlook for Microsoft in 2020 and some of the things I see as being significant this coming year. Um, you know, everybody wants to say that Microsoft has abandoned consumers, but I disagree with that. There's just so much going on with consumers. Windows 10, for instance, these updates that come out once or twice a year are targeted towards consumers. Uh, there's features in there for the enterprise too, but it really is targeted towards consumers. So you have Windows 10 20 H1, that's that build in slow ring that's being kind of cooked. 
and then um, you have Windows 10 V Next. That's the next branch of things. You got Edge Chromium, which we just got stable for. All the software, the apps, and the services, those are also targeting consumers on both Android, iOS, Mac OS, and of course Windows. Um, and then Surface Hardware, just the, the announcements last October for the hardware that's out there. And I, I just learned this past week I'm going to finally get my hands on Surface Pro X the ARM-based Windows 10 device, and I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm very thankful to Qualcomm, who's going to send me that device. Uh, I'm going to get about two months with it. They're going to send me a, a Verizon SIM so I can do the always connected experience. I'm really looking. This will be the first time I've ever had a chance to do that. But when you look at the hardware stuff, Microsoft continues to build hardware for things. And we're going to talk a little bit later, but Surface Neo that will run Windows 10X and Surface Duo that will run Android, um, Microsoft just this past week released some stuff that makes that very exciting and that it's coming. And of course, we got Xbox and gaming. We've got all of that stuff with Xbox All Access, Xbox Game Pass, the Xbox Series X that's coming out this holiday season. So there's more than enough going on for consumers when it comes to Microsoft. Uh, I think people have it, you know, a little, it's not as big a deal as it used to be at Microsoft, but it's still a big deal. All right, so what else have we got to talk about? Final Windows 7 updates we mentioned. Uh, good article here from Ed Bott about what's going to happen on your Windows 7 PC after the January 15th. You're going to start to see some alerts that says you're not protected. Um, Cost-wise, ESUs, costing the German government, is going to pay over 800,000 euros for Windows 7 support this year. They have something like 33,000 devices running Windows 7 that have to have extended security updates. I'm thrilled they're doing ESUs. A lot of people wanted to write this as a way Microsoft is making money by shutting down a 10-year-old operating system. But when you look at the technology behind Windows 7, I know it works. But in this world that we live in, in the type of technology and connections and security and threats and all of that stuff, Windows 7 has fallen well behind the power curve. Windows 10 is the OS of security and things of that nature. Um, there's also been a lot of recent announcements about Chromebooks. So there's a lot of work going on by Google to improve those Chromebooks. They estimated about 40 million are being used in education these days. So they're doing things like helping to improve student writing and originality reports and the different rubrics in the classroom. They're talking about unleashing student creativity with Chromebooks. They're talking about the Chromebook App Hub and how that's changing and updating. Um, and then what I mentioned a minute ago, the exciting stuff coming out of Microsoft is they have announced the, uh, they have launched the dual screen preview software development kit and they announced, I think it's going to be on February 11th, the Microsoft 365 developer day. And what's going to happen on this developer day is they're going to talk about dual screen devices. So they're releasing an SDK that will let, it's, this is for Surface Duo, that is the Android based device, right? That's the smaller device of the two that were announced last fall. So they've announced that SDK, it is out, it's available. In fact, you can go find some really good videos. Go look at Zach Bowden at Z-A-C-B-O-W-E-N. Look at his uh, Twitter profile. You will see a video that he did that many other sites grabbed a hold of because he did a really good walkthrough of, of how different things work in the current version of the emulator for Surface Duo. Um, then we have, so we have that coming. 
on February 11th, I mentioned uh, Windows, or they're going to do a developer day on the 11th. Is it the, let's see, 11th, yeah, 11th of February, 8.30 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's going to be online, so you just have to, to be watching for that. You can sign up for it, I think, and get a reminder. But they're going to talk about the SDKs, and that day they're going to release the SDK for Windows 10X. That is the, the special version of Windows 10 that is built for dual screen devices. It's actually going to be a Hyper-V image, which means if you know how to run Hyper-V, you'll be able to run that image on your in your, in your Hyper-V setup, and you'll be able to see that emulator. I'm really excited about that. Uh, they're going to talk about the SDKs and how to get the most out of those emulators. They're going to talk about cross-platform tools and languages. They're going to talk about designing apps for those dual screen devices. They're going to talk building dual screen experiences on the web so that they work better on the devices. And then they're going to talk about connecting apps with Microsoft 365. Um, this blog post alone with the SDK has a lot of insight about the discussions around dual screens and how the approach is going to be and how you can work with it. So there's a lot to be read there and caught up with if you're a developer, but as an enthusiast, there's a great amount of stuff there to learn from too. So that is coming. Um, AI features, so this is my apps and software segment. So um, email Emil Protalinski on uh, VentureBeat talked about Office and some of the AI features that are being incorporated into that. So you can check that article out. A Windows 10 user, Google has revealed that it's going to kill off Chrome apps. Um, and they have announced that that date is going to be, let me get this up on my screen. They're killing off Chrome apps for Windows, Mac, and Linux this year to push ahead with web apps. So everything's going to be web PWA progressive web application. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I cannot believe it just auto-played that video. By the way, there is a really good setting. So if you go to edge semicolon backslash backslash flags on edge canary, I think it's on edge canary developer beta and stable. So you go to the flag edge edge sim or colon backslash backslash flags f-l-a-g-s and do a search for um I think it's block. You'll find an entry there for that will allow the block entry to be available within the settings of Edge. I'm going to write this up as a blog post because I think it's an important little feature. you got to go dig it out of the flags of the special uh, kind of tool underneath that they're testing with. But it will allow you to choose block instead of limit. So the, there are currently two choices for media autoplay in Edge. And that is uh, allow it or limit it. Not everything respects limit like just happened to me right there when I pulled up this VentureBeat or ZDNet article. So um, you can take and you can go in and you can trip this flag and it will add block as an option and it won't play any auto video automatically. So I will I'm promise you a blog post to explain how that is done if you can't follow that. I think others have done it, but I'll do it for my own sake as well. So anyway, um, these apps are going to be uh, taken down and killed off because, because Google intends to focus on progressive web applications, PWAs, through the browser for those tools as opposed to doing separate apps for them. And it makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> uh, let's see what else. Microsoft Mouse and Keyboard Center now supports ARM64 PCs like the Surface Pro X. So if you are on running a Surface Pro X or you're running an ARM-based device, ARM64-based device, the new Microsoft, the Microsoft Mouse and Keyboard Center has been updated to you, for you to be able to use on those devices. Uh, the Microsoft Launcher for Android, new preview. Uh, they, are, they are actually testing kind of like a fast ring version of the, 
launcher preview in, uh, that they're testing separate from the Microsoft launcher that's out there that you can get on on the beta for for Android. And this new one is focusing, it looks like it's going to be the baseline for the dual screen Surface Duo and how that will use Microsoft Launcher in a dual screen environment. You don't get it as a dual screen environment on the phone, but I think it's being built to kind of accommodate those features. Um, and then Dell Mobile Connect, it's taken so long for a, a, you know, we have your phone and its ability to do things uh, on your Android phone, like messaging, pictures, things like that, notifications, it's not as integrated with iOS. Well, Dell has figured out how to integrate with iOS, and I'm not sure what they're doing different that Microsoft can't do in the Your Phone app, but if you are an iOS user, you can check out Dell Mobile Connect, and it will let you share files, mirror your screen, and things like that from iOS to Windows 10. All right, services, let's see, Media Guide for... Um, uh, Media Guide for the, the what's that, what was that system called? For Windows Media Center, the Media Guide data has gone offline now as expected. So there are some workarounds. You might be able to get media data or get that stuff from another place, but it costs money. Um, so if you're still a diehard Windows Media Center user, um, which isn't under support anymore that I'm aware of, uh, there are ways to get your media data back, your, uh, your guide data, but you may have to pay for it. Uh, more helpful Google Assistant. There was a lot of announcements at CES 2020 around Google Assistant. Uh, the, Mary Jo Foley had a great interview with the Vice President of Cortana to discuss the Digital Assistant and its productivity-focused features um, and its future around productivity, so you can check that story out. Uh, Microsoft also wrote about eight new ways to empower first-line workers and transform how they work with Microsoft 365. One of these that's getting a little attention is the ability within Teams to kind of walkie-talkie from phone to phone via the app. Um, so an interesting kind of concept for communications to your frontline workers. Um, Apple has decided they're finally killing Flash support in Safari. So more, we are getting closer and closer to the demise of Flash uh, overall. Uh, the new Edge is very much locked down on Flash. It's not activated by default. You can turn it on. But let me tell you, I currently have to turn it on when I want to stream Xfinity to my devices, and I use Edge. But you, every time I open that version of Edge, that channel that I choose to use, I get a big banner across the top that says, Flash is turned on. It's going away soon, and do you want to deactivate it? So it's a bit of a pain to have to use Flash and to use Flash. I really hope Xfinity gets their stuff sorted out for their streaming and dumps Flash real soon. Um, introducing and mentioned, remember at the top of the show, I talked about Search and Bing for, for Office 365 Pro Plus subscribers and that new extension to be installed in Chrome. I've got the link to the story here about in, uh, managing that new Search and Bing through Office 365 Pro Plus. Uh, and then uh, another background story with somebody talking about that push Again, I think there's been a bit of an overreaction to this. It is manageable. It wasn't snuck in on people, you know, but you got to take a step. If you manage and administrate for a Pro Plus account, you've got to take steps to keep it from implementing when the time comes. On the hardware front, AMD is now reported to have 40% of the processor market share for the first time in 14 years since they've been building processors. I build all my desktop processors with AMD. I love them to death. They're great desktop processors. Uh, PC sales grew 1.9% in 2019, they said. Right after that, a couple weeks later, somebody wrote a story and said the Windows 10 upgrade rush got us buying PCs again, but not for very long. So there's one version of, hey, we had a little bit of growth in the PC market, but hey, it was because of this, and that's not going to sustain. So it, two different takes, but that's okay. Uh, on the gaming front, what's going on in the Xbox world? Um, let's see. 
Xbox console streaming previews is expanding. That's now expanded to, to every every I think it's every country um, that had that has. Let's see, what did they say? Um, all supported countries and regions for Xbox One. So if you are in a region and a country that is supported, the Xbox One is supported, you can now try the console streaming. So this is different from Project X Cloud. You still access it with the same app, but you're basically streaming from your console to your phone or your mobile device. And you got to download an app to do this. Um, but this is also one that you can do outside your home. So it can be remotely accessed and you can stream on your phone, say if you're down the block and you wanted to stream from your console, you can. That's now available to everybody. And I mentioned this is different from Xbox Project X Cloud. However, Project X Cloud has been doing some expansion as well. Uh, Halo the Master Chief Collection, Destiny 2 has recently been added to that platform. And so if you're testing Project X Cloud, you can uh, get those games on that device as well. I also included here, uh, because of these new additions to xCloud, a great post from Windows Central from their gaming folks about the Xbox streaming games list for Project xCloud. So these don't stream from your console. They stream from the cloud, from Microsoft servers, down to your device. Pretty. Imp I've always had a better experience with Project xCloud streaming from Microsoft servers than streaming from the console on my own device and other places. On my local network, works pretty good. Uh, I can easily do it and not have any issues. But So that that is a whole realm uh, they're really leaving Project Stadia and other attempts at this mobile cloud-based gaming in the dust. They truly are, just from the performance, the graphics, and the experience, it's just really, really impressive. Um, we also saw uh, Microsoft's Xbox uh, head, Phil Spencer, showed off the Xbox Series X CPU in a profile picture on his Twitter profile. Um, and then there was also news that Microsoft Mixer's video game streaming service now has almost as many active channels as Twitch does. There's also been some recent reporting about issues around Microsoft Mixer. And Mixer is Microsoft's version of Twitch, right? The gamer streaming platform. Lots of big news recently with uh, Ninja signing a big deal to come over to Mixer. But apparently there's some... There is the, the 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 corporate bureaucracy of Xbox and Microsoft prevents the team from responding uh, in a very timely way to some issues and concerns and things like that. So they have there are some issues around Mixer and the way their story was written this past week over at Windows Central, it kind of alluded to the fact is this a repeat of Windows Phone or other consumer technologies that Microsoft has worked on? Um, I I gotta think that they that hopefully that has got the interior team thinking they have to make some changes in the way they respond to things, the way they roll out new features, and how they roll out new features. It's got to be more responsive because you don't want to leave folks stalemated and stale on a platform, unable to do things. You don't want them to have to come up with third-party solutions. A lot of them have to come up with third-party solutions for doing game clips, for instance, because it's not as robust within Microsoft Mixer's platform. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And probably fairly, I, I can't say fairly easy technology-wise to fix, but at least to be tackled and looked at and dealt with. And then the last Xbox gaming thing I'll mention is Sea of Thieves. They announced this month that they have passed 10 million players since that game has launched. And now the game's on Xbox Game Pass because it's Microsoft Studios, so there's lots of people able to access it through the Game Pass stuff. Uh, miscellaneous kind of tech, I got a story here, big discussions this past month about multi-factor authentication. This is a story about how to implement it. 
from Microsoft from their security blog and talks about that. It's from Ann Johnson and Christina Marillo. They are the, the one is the Azure Identity Engineering Product Team Program Manager and one is the Corporate VP Ann Johnson for Cybersecurity Solutions. So if you're thinking about MFA or you or you're you got to read this story, you got to get that second level of accountability in there and access to people's accounts. Um, we heard from Twitter that likely tweets will not be editable. Um, Twitter also has added some reply options to on directly on the compose screen. This is interesting because I, I don't think I've seen this yet. At least I haven't noticed it in the Windows 10 official app or through the web, which I access both or the mobile version of the app on Android. But apparently they're going to implement some reply features. They're doing it on their beta app, but they're going to implement some features. This came out at CES in Las Vegas last month, this past month. And apparently what they're going to do is they're going to implement the ability to, they're calling it narrow casting. So um, where is the feature at? Um, I know that they've got this new topic follow. I'm doing that for a few things, but I'm trying to find the specific words that they use to describe it. Um, you will have the ability to, oh, so here it is. So you'll be able to only get replies from the people you mentioned in the tweet or post a statement that simply allows you to post a tweet and have no replies. Uh, and then uh, you'll be able to have it choose to have anybody reply to it. So you'll get a few different, so global replies, a group replies, a panel or statement are the four categories. And so group is for everybody, you for people you follow and mention. Panel is specifically you mention somebody in the tweet, they can reply and then statement, is just a statement, can't receive any replies. I don't think that closes out retweets. So this changes up a few things when it comes to discussion. Uh, you would hope that people uh, would not use it to kind of limit discussion and limit, um, uh, you know, the, the criticism or feedback or things like that. But it'll be interesting to see how these get implemented and how people embrace that. But it's an interesting change. The other thing recently happened is kind of a neat thing. On direct messages on Twitter, there's now a little feature where you can drop an emoji. They've got about seven emoji choices there that allows you to reply to a DM just by simply thumbs up, thumbs down, hot, fire, crying, laughing, things like that. Uh, a really good um, profile on Panos Pane. Uh, it's called The Humble Heart of Success Inside Microsoft Surface Hardware. It's written by uh, Ewan Spence. He is a contributor at Forbes. It's a really good kind of insightful kind of background on Panos Pane. If you've ever watched him do a presentation, whether it be on video or in person, you know that family and those connections are very important to him. And I think that story really brings that stuff out. And unbeknownst, I didn't know it, but it was revealed in this story. Uh, Panos's parents were at last October's Surface event in New York City because his dad had said to him, I've never seen you do your thing. So his, his dad and mom were apparently in the audience during that event, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, Microsoft announced their intent to be carbon negative by 2030. That is just 10 years from now. When they say carbon negative, they mean not putting, not expending things and doing things that introduce carbon into the atmosphere or into the environment. They'll actually be negative, that they will be taking back carbon they've in, that they have created since the beginning of Microsoft. It's, it, it's an interesting read to see how they're going to approach it and stuff like that. Uh, and then you remember last episode, I was talking about the fact it was just before New Year's Eve, 20 years since Y2K and how Y2K, a lot of people want to say was a hoax, but I know a lot of work went into making Y2K uh, a non-issue. However, it's kind of funny as we rolled over to 2020, apparently some of the way uh, developers and programmers fixed Y2K 20 years ago caused 
a Y2020 bug in the way dates are handled. So there's a really good blog post explaining this by Om Malik, uh, and I've got a link there for that. I mentioned earlier all of the CES stuff, so new Windows devices from Acer, Dell, HP, Asus, um, product refreshes, new devices, new form factors, all kinds of stuff going on in the Windows world. Uh, Lenovo also announced their first world's, uh, the first 5G PC. Um, uh, I buy power showing off new stuff for its case line. Uh, you also had all the new Chromebook announcements from, from Google out at CES. So lots going on with CES when it comes to hardware, again, consumer and enterprise level stuff. But there's a ton of stuff here, and I'm not going to go through each blog post. I must have, let's see, I probably got two, four, six. I probably got 15 blog post links in the show notes just about CES hardware now. So plenty there for you to get caught up in, and read. And then finally, moving into the space side of the podcast, um, interesting story this month talking about Betelgeuse. That is the right shoulder of the constellation Orion. It's kind of a reddish-tinted star. Uh, about it going through a fainting, a fainting as in dimming period. Betelgeuse has always uh, gone, it kind of fluctuated with its brightness, but apparently it's going a little further this time, uh, which kind of surprised scientists. There's discussions, could it be heading towards supernova state, where the star basically uh, collapses in on itself and explodes? Uh, we would see that here on Earth. But don't forget, Betelgeuse, I, I don't even know off the top of my head how far, how many light years Betelgeuse is away from us. But this light we're seeing dim right now is ancient light that happened just eternity ago. And so it's an interesting story and something to be keeping an eye on. All the discussion around going to Mars, we know everybody's talking about the moon as the interim outpost to go to Mars. But uh, there's an interesting Scientific American blog post about death on Mars and how dangerous Mars is, the atmosphere for human uh, explorers, not only the atmosphere, but the radiation environment, and how it, it, they talk about and writes about how it can't be overstated, how dangerous Mars could be. So I know there's a lot of like pie in the sky, glint in your eye, talk about going to Mars, but, but it's more than just uh, landing and jumping out and being on a new planet. So interesting read right there. Uh, Ownership. Oh, Strato Launch. So Strato Launch built that huge, massive airplane. I think they're out in New Mexico. This was the company owned by Paul Allen. So the concept here was that they would strap a hypersonic vehicle underneath this massive airplane, fly it up to altitude, 35, 40,000 feet, and then drop the, the launch vehicle from there, and it would use a powered rocket to continue into orbit, very similar to what uh, Virgin Galactic does with their star, with their spaceships. So it looked like Strato Launch was not going to continue, but it looks like the ownership, the new ownership, has confirmed they are still working on building hypersonic vehicles to use that launch platform, which I think is terrific, and it's a great uh, kind of testament to Paul Allen and what the work he started there on the SpaceX front. This could be a really big year for SpaceX. The the label somebody used was transcendent. Uh, you might be paying, if you're paying attention to SpaceX, you know a couple weeks ago they had a successful in-flight abort test of the Crew Dragon capsule. They basically stacked the capsule on top of a Falcon 9 first stage and second stage, and they launched that thing, and at the point of maximum pressure, maximum dynamic atmospheric pressure, they they killed the thrust from the Falcon 9 engines. 
the the Dragon capsule sensed it immediately, fired its four Draco super thrusters, super Dracos, and pulled that capsule away. No astronauts in it, but a couple of dummies with test gear in them. And they pulled that thing away. I think they, they said at the post-conference that it went like 2.4 times the speed of sound in, as it accelerated away from the Falcon 9 first stage and the second stage um, and reached an altitude of about 131,000 feet and then uh, came back down under four uh, main droves, three main droves I think they used, maybe four, and landed in the Atlantic Ocean, was recovered and brought back into port. Very successful test. Everything looked great. Everything looked like it worked the way it was supposed to. They got to look at the data as well, but they report that the maximum G was somewhere around six and a half G. And when you go back and look at the Soyuz abort, that happened um, been a year two years now um, they actually pulled right in that same ballpark of maximum g but that maximum g is very brief and then it starts to dissipate once the acceleration is over so really encouraging this they said at the news conference afterwards so they could potentially be looking at dm1 which is demonstration mission one with astronauts with two astronauts in the second quarter of this year that means april may june Anytime in that three-month period, they're still they're finalizing the build of the Crew Dragon out at Hawthorne, and then it's got to be tested and make sure everything's working the way it's supposed to be working, and then they could potentially be doing that first crewed mission from U.S. soil, from Cape Canaveral, uh, to space station with two astronauts sometime this year, very soon. And uh, so we got February, March, two more months, and then we're open to that quarter. Um, granted, that's their target. It's not a guarantee, and they're not going to give any guarantees at this point. But that is per- that is superb because you got to think the last time we launched astronauts from U.S. soil was on space shuttle STS-135 on the Atlantis back in 2011 when she made her final flight and the final flight of the shuttle era. So it is exciting to see this coming to bear. On the Boeing side of things, Boeing, you know that we talked about Boeing's unsuccessful in, uh, orbital flight test that they had with Starliner. However, they did release some video that shows launch, uh, their orbit, and their recovery from inside the capsule. They had some cameras mounted, so we're seeing some of that was posted, and you can go check that out as well. Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin, they are ramping up their team for Blue Moon Lander, and they're waiting to hear back from NASA, but Blue Origin was one of the companies selected to potentially work on a proposal for a lander for the moon, the gateway out at the moon, you know, talk, not specifically Artemis, but talking about a lander that can be used by NASA for that program. And then NASA, let's see, 2019 Space Station Research and Pictures, there's a nice uh, gallery there. Uh, NASA pays tribute to one of their outgoing observatories. Uh, they are going to be uh, retiring and shutting down um, uh, Spitzer Space Telescope. Uh, that is going to be shut down. Uh, the The ceremony was held this past Wednesday to talk about it and celebrate it, and it's going to be uh, shut down. I think it's scheduled for shutdown uh, later this month, or maybe that was the day for it. But yes, yeah, Spitzer has sent a tremendous amount of obs- observations from space, and they're working on the James Webb Telescope, which will replace Spitzer, but it will also replace Hubble at some point as well. Uh, so that's going on. The Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel released for 2019. The annual report on NASA and aerospace safety has been released. If you're a geek, that's real good geek reading. 
Uh, and then NASA graduated their 13 newest astronauts this past month. They are going to be eligible for potentially missions to space station, to the moon, and Mars. They are that era of astronauts. Uh, the group of 13, they called their class the Turtles, uh, but they were all uh, officially designated as astronauts after their two years of training. And uh, these folks are going to be doing some really exciting things relating to NASA, especially the moon and Mars stuff. Um, all right, so there's all your space kind of things there. So a uh, last few things that I want to mention, uh, two things. First off, I read a story this past month that recommended that you not abbreviate 2020 on your checks and other documents, that you spell it out 2020. And part of this reason apparently being for scams and phishing and things of this nature, because if you just write 20, somebody could write 19 afterwards and forge it and just claim that it was a previous check, right? So somebody could potentially cause some issues. So just write 2020 out. That way nobody can change it that way. Uh, it, it's a recommendation for your own good, for your own safety, for your own security. Write out 2020. I've got a link to the story here that talks about the background on that. And then the other thing I want to mention is at one point on Twitter this past month, I came across a blog post from a, a fella who was talking about um, job, right? Um, so initially the, the tweet came up from Brad Sams on January 5th and it was something he picked up from, from somewhere. Uh, maybe it was a question he asked, I don't know, but he, the guy said, I've been working as a computer technician at a mid-sized company, about 20 employees. We buy computers in bulk at various conditions and refurbish them. Uh, recently his boss acquired 600 windows laptops that were previously activated with KMS, that's the Microsoft's key management. For the non-technical, that means that the, they all can be connected to one server that will validate the Windows installation on all of them. Obviously, when we sell it, it won't be activated. His boss wants him to avoid paying the $100 it costs for a valid Windows key, and he told him to pirate those keys. He says, I really need this job, and he told me that if I want to keep my job, I must pirate it. Can I be held responsible for pirating if he is ever caught? Now, I, I don't know what the law is of being held accountable, but I will tell you this, is your integrity worth that? I get the need for a job, but I'm of the mind, and I initially posted that sometimes your integrity is not is more valuable. And then later on that morning, I said, no, you know what? I got to change that. Your integrity is always more valuable than that circumstance or that situation or doing a thing like that that you know is wrong. And that you know shouldn't be done. And I get that your boss is telling you to do this. Your boss is telling you if you want a job, you got to do this. But ultimately, your integrity, your personal integrity, is way more valuable than any job and any situation in that. So my advice to this gentleman would be is that you don't do it. You tell the boss you're not going to do it. And then let your boss carry through with their threat. And you may have recourse once that happens to deal with that amongst labor laws or whatever it might be, but the but you will have never been in a situation where you could potentially be held accountable for an act like that because you chose to value your integrity as an individual, as a technician, as an IT pro, as a human being more valuable than that type of thing. So in my suggestion, my opinion to him and to everybody else out there that gets faced with these moral, moral conflicts and moral integrity issues, never ever sacrifice your integrity for anything. It's not worth it at any point whatsoever is it worth sacrificing your integrity. And that's where I'm going to leave you at this, this time with episode four. 
Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing your enthusiasm and your feedback. Uh, keep it coming. Let me know what you want to hear us talk about, and they will, uh, we will work on those kind of things. But in, until next time, I want to send you all blessings and safety, and take care. We will see you next time on the Faith, Tech, and Space podcast. Bye, everybody. Thank you.